0: Members or Mimics. Do you remember Mr. Dress-up and his tickle trunk? It's fun to play dress-up. When my kids were young, we had a dress-up box which had everything from a clown's wig to a policeman's hat. It's amusing for children to try on different get-ups and pretend to be different characters. Sometimes they would play school with them as the teacher and their stuffies and dolls as the students. But sooner or later, it's time for supper and the Costumes have to come off and go back in the box. Unfortunately, some adults don't seem to grow up when it comes to their religious life. Instead of actually being part of a church, they're content to just play church. They're not members, but mimics. A mimic is someone who imitates or copies or pretends to be someone they're not. Today we're looking at what it means to be a member of a church, the real thing, not an imitation or pretending. Marriage is one of the most precious covenants and commitments a person can make. Can you imagine marrying an apartment or a room? That's not a relationship. Yet that's how some folks approach their relationship to church. J. Vernon McGee said this, If there is no deep yearning for a life that is well-pleasing to him, if there is no stimulating desire to know him and his word, Church membership is just like a young man falling in love with a furnished apartment and marrying an electric stove, a refrigerator, a vacuum cleaner, a garbage disposal, and a wet mop. That is just about all it amounts to. Let's stop playing church today and start loving Christ and living for Him. End quote. As we look at Romans 12 and this topic of church membership, there are four main elements that stand out. First, it's about God-consciousness, not self-focus. It's about one-anothering, being different but interdependent. Membership is a grace gift, and the attitude with which we serve matters. Tom Rayner is a well-known church consultant with much wisdom, and I'm indebted to his little book, I Am a Church Member, from which I'll draw some material today. I highly recommend you get a copy. You'll find it edifying as I did. First section. It's about God-consciousness not self-focus. Selfishness is not pretty. When someone is me-focused we can often spot it quickly. It's more difficult when we're the one that's self-focused. I was shocked this past Wednesday by the scenes of protesters breaking into the Capitol in Washington, D.C., invading offices, breaking windows, guns being drawn, people killed at the very heart of the U.S. political system. For a few hours, it seemed the nation teetered on the brink of anarchy. It reminded me of the storming of the Bastille and the French Revolution. The crowds were incited by a self-focused president who seemed determined to hang on to power at any cost, making false allegations of election fraud, willing to risk violence so he might stay in office. Thankfully, elected officials were able eventually to proceed with certifying election results and the way was opened to an orderly transition of power. But what chaos and anarchy, selfishness sparks! The Apostle Paul begins her passage by admonishing believers to focus on God rather than themselves. Romans 12:3 says, "For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you." Do you hear that? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Ugh! We like to have a pretty good opinion of ourselves. The world teaches us, "Look out for number one." my way or the highway. Instead, Paul urges we're to think of ourselves with sober judgment, soberly, honestly, rightly. The dictionary translates the word in the original language to put a moderate estimate upon one's self, not overinflated, not in bondage to constantly giving priority to our own preferences. And it's to be, quote, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Not our ability or our accomplishments, which we might brag about, but in accord with the amount of our faith, our trust, our commitment and reliance upon God in every detail of our lives. Is my faith stronger today than it was last month, last year? Have I ventured out in obedience to God's leading in a way that tested and proved how faithful he was? Faith has to do with my consciousness of and reliance upon God. Am I just planning things in a way that relies on my own steam? Being a real member of a church helps us become less selfish. Tom Raider writes, The strange thing about church membership is that you actually give up your preferences when you join. Don't get me wrong, there may be much about your church that you like a lot, but you are there to meet the needs of others. You are there to serve others. You are there to give. You are there to sacrifice. Okay. Rayner offers half a dozen summary statements in I am a church member that encapsulate the meaning of membership in a covenant sort of way. Here's the suggested commitment introduced in his chapter, I will not let my church be about my preferences and desires. It says, I am a church member. I will not let my church be about my preferences and desire. That is self-serving. I am a member in this church to serve others and to serve Christ. My Savior went to a cross for me. I can deal with any inconveniences and matters that just aren't my preference or style. Second section. It's about one anothering and unifying. We're different but interdependent. Scripture emphasizes that churches will operate like they should only when every member is functioning within the body. Every member has received different spiritual gifts that need to be used in service to the church. Ultimately, the foundation for exercising these gifts is love, which draws us together even though we're different. It unifies us. In verses 4-6, to six, Paul uses the analogy of a human body to make his point about how the folks in the fellowship, who seem so different at first glance, actually discover an overarching sense of unity and commonality as they apply their various gifts and skills. Romans 12, 4-6 says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given us. Get the picture? Many members, but one body. It would be a shame to have some body parts without the others. For instance, your mouth and teeth do a great job of chewing. But just as important in the process is your small intestine. Did you know it's absorptive surface areas about 250 square meters or the size of a tennis court? Yet, you never see it. Many members, one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 20. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Or verse 27 later on. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Back in Romans 12, Paul emphasizes one anothering. See verses 9 and 10. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. You hear the one another's there? Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Unfortunately, some churches fall into the trap of petty divisions and arguments and tensions because they lose sight of loving those who see things differently than they do. Tom Rainer's research team did a survey of churches that were inwardly focused, not serving outside their own walls. There were ten dominant behavior patterns amongst the churches surveyed. Worship Wars One or more factions in the church want the music just the way they like it. The order of service must remain constant. Prolonged Minutia Meetings Too many meetings dealing with inconsequential items instead of the Great Commission and Great Commandment. They failed to keep the main thing the main thing. Facility focus. Protecting and preserving rooms, furniture, and other visible parts of the building and grounds assumes high priority. Program driven. The problem develops when the program becomes an end instead of a means to greater ministry. Inwardly focused budget. A disproportionate share is used to meet the comforts of the members instead of reaching beyond the walls of the church. Inordinate demands for pastoral care. People have unreasonable expectations for even minor matters. Attitudes of entitlement. The overarching attitude is one of demanding and having a sense of deserving special treatment. Greater concern about change than the gospel. Any noticeable changes in the church evoke ire, while there's little passion about changing lives through the good news of Jesus. Anger and hostility towards both staff and other members. Alas, evangelistic apathy. Few share their faith on a regular basis. They're more concerned about their own needs rather than the eternal needs of the world and their community. Hmm. Is this list ringing any bells? Do we recognize ourselves in any of those characteristics of inwardly focused churches? Our differences should not be leading to division and bickering, but appreciating and loving one another. During World War II, Hitler commanded all religious groups to unite so that he could control them. Among the Brethren Assemblies, half complied and half refused. Those who went along with the order had a much easier time. Those who did not faced harsh persecution. In almost every family of those who resisted, someone died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, feelings of bitterness ran deep between the groups and there was much tension. Finally, they decided that the situation had to be healed. Leaders from each group met at a quiet retreat. For several days, each person spent time in prayer, examining his own heart in the light of Christ's commands, and they came together. Francis Schaeffer, who told of the incident, asked a friend who was there, What did you do then? We were just one, he replied. As they confessed their hostility and bitterness to God and Yielded to his control, the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among them. Love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred. Rayner offers this corresponding pledge concerning the need for being unified. He says, I am a church member. I will seek to be a source of unity in my church. I know there are no perfect pastors, staff, or other church members, but neither am I. I will not be a source of gossip or dissension. One of the greatest contributions I can make is to do all I can in God's power to help keep the church in unity for the sake of the gospel. Next section. Membership is a grace gift. It is an outflow of God's rich grace that makes it possible for us to repent, be born again, receive his Holy Spirit, and be united with Christ, walking with him day by day. In verses 6 and 7, Paul underlines that the differing gifts are assigned according to God's grace. Romans 12, 6 and 7. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. Don't feel short-changed or unfairly dealt with because your gift doesn't happen to be as high-profile as someone else's or that so-and-so gets to be greeter while you're delegated to sanitize the washroom between uses. Don't feel jealous because Sam is such a wonderful life group leader while you feel most comfortable tending little ones in the nursery. Paul emphasizes the gifts are distributed according to God's sovereign design, not our deserving or planning. The gifts differ according to the grace given us. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, 24, 25 says, But in fact God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. It's the Lord who has done the arranging, combining, assembling a marvelous diversity of giftings and personalities in a complex way that's capable of impacting all the different types of folks who haven't yet come to know Jesus. Divine grace is reflected in the different functions. Some lead, some serve, some teach, some give, and so on. Did you notice how the apostle began this section? Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Exhorting and instructing were gifts of Paul by the Lord's grace. Tom Rainer offers this pledge recognizing membership is a gift. He says, I am a church member. This membership is a gift. When I received the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, I became a part of the body of Christ. I soon thereafter identified with a local body and was baptized. And now I am humbled and honored to serve and to love others in our church. I pray that I will never take my membership for granted, but see it as a gift and an opportunity to serve others and to be a part of something so much greater than any one person or member. During the Spanish-American War, Clara Barton was overseeing the work of the Red Cross in Cuba. One day, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt came to her. He wanted to buy food for his sick and wounded Rough Riders, but she refused to sell him any. Roosevelt was perplexed. His men needed the help, and he was prepared to pay out of his own funds. When he asked someone why he could not buy the supplies, he was told, Colonel, just ask for it. A smile broke over Roosevelt's face. Now he understood. The provisions were not for sale. All he had to do was simply ask, and they would be given freely. For all of us who are in Christ, we too have received a gift, the free gift of salvation. This free gift was costly. It cost Jesus his very life. Yet, it did not cost us anything. Our ministry in diverse forms springs forth from his grace. Fourth and finally, besides just using our gift, putting it into practice, it matters how we do it. The attitude with which we serve is important. It matters. Pay attention to the progression in the modifying phrases in Romans 12, 7, and 8. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. There's a big difference between giving grudgingly and giving cheerfully. Second Corinthians 9, seven. God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus commended with special honor the poor widow who put in two copper coins, all she had to live on, rather than the rich folks who made large donations out of their wealthy surplus. Mark 12.41 does our attitude shine when we show mercy? A few weeks ago when wet snow made the road slick, I passed someone who apparently had just a few moments earlier gone off in the ditch. Should I stop? Want to be late for my meeting? Did I hurry on like the priest and the Levite declining to stop and help the beaten victim at the side of the road? I turned the car around and made sure the occupant in the ditch had a cell phone, and they had already called for roadside assistance, which was on its way. I carried on with my schedule, but had to watch not to become perturbed at the delay. Sometimes it's you or me off in that ditch, and I'd be glad if somebody stopped. Parts of verses 10 to 12 hint also at the attitude with which we ought to be ministering to others. Do we just do the thing at bare minimum or go above and beyond? Romans 12, 10-12 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Ah. Being patient in affliction, now that's an attitude that shows real character. When we're Christ-centered rather than self-centered, we give ourselves in commitment to kingdom endeavors rather than just feathering our own nest. We become what Tom Raynor calls functional church members. To what degree have you committed yourself to Jesus' cause, in particular through the various ministries of your local church? A man was coming out of church one day, and the preacher was standing at the door, as he always did, ready to shake hands. The pastor grabbed the man's hand, pulled him aside, and said to him, You need to join the army of the Lord. The man replied, Preacher, I'm already in the army of the Lord. The preacher quickly asked, How come I don't see you except at Christmas and Easter? The man whispered back, I'm in the secret service. Let us use our gifts and use them in such a manner that honors the Lord who blesses us with abilities. Rayner offers this pledge of commitment in terms of being a functioning member. I am a church member. I like the metaphor of membership. It's not membership as in a civic organization or a country club. It's the kind of membership given to us in 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Because I am a member of the body of Christ, I must be a functioning member, whether I'm an eye, an ear, or a hand. As a functioning member, I will give, I will serve, I will minister, I will evangelize, I will study, I will seek to be a blessing to others. I will remember that if one member suffers, others, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it." Perhaps you've heard the Church referred to disparagingly as a holy huddle. That sort of implies it's just a place where believers gather together and focus on one another. But there's one problem with such a huddle as someone has observed. The world around us has a very different perspective of a huddle. When they see a huddle, They see a bunch of backsides, and the view is not at all attractive. The Church was never called to be a holy huddle or a hotel for saints. The Church and its members were called to be a hospital for sinners. To respond to our Lord's calling, we must be willing to serve someone beside ourselves, as the Great Commission implies. Jesus' commission to the Church is that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, Now, making disciples does not take place primarily within the walls of the church. In fact, the early church did not have a building where they met each week. They usually met in homes or in the temple. Most of their time was spent fulfilling their regular responsibilities. It was in fulfilling these responsibilities that they were to make disciples. The same is true for us. 72, 36, 14. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you for your grace and for calling us into the church to be uh, united with Christ and united with one another, with other believers who can help build us up and stretch us and challenge us. Lord, uh, please be with here in chapel and help us to be functioning members of your body. Help us to be reaching out beyond our walls and to uh, be taking your good news of uh, Jesus' salvation into the world to change lives. In his name we pray. Amen.